0: She gave me a a really bad grade, and I was not happy. I was a, you know, fourth grader at the time, and I turned in this assignment, and it was a report, and I turned it in, and she had the audacity to give me a bad grade. Me, a bad grade. And I was righteously angry. Because I technically did everything she asked me to do on the report. I had the right number of words. I used cursive writing. I had the right paper. I used the right number two leaded pencil. Now, for you younger folks, those were this writing utensil. Anyway, I, I double-spaced it. I covered the topic like she asked me to cover, and she still gave me a bad grade. I was angry with her, as you can understand, and I want to know what was up. I was getting myself all in a tizzy, and then she asked me a question. Ben, did you do your best work? That was the kicker. I didn't. I, I did everything I was supposed to do but I know that I didn't really do a great job. You ever done that? Or you you dot all the I's, you cross the T's, but you know you didn't really do your best work. And then when I got into high school, this happened to me again. You know, me. Happened to me again. I was a freshman, and I was signing up for classes, and I wanted to be in the easy English class. I wanted to be, and I think they called it back then remedial English, which I don't think they use that term anymore. It's kind of not politically correct. I don't know. I wanted to be basically in the easy, is the easy A class. And the teacher happened to know me. And the teacher would not let me in his class. And then once again, I was righteously angry. I, I, I'm a, an American citizen. I don't even know what I said to him. Like, like that holds any weight. I don't know what the teachers. Anyway, I said, I, I should be in this class. And he said, no, nope, you can't be in this class. And I said, why not? You know what he told me? He said, you can do better work than that level. Now, what were these teachers doing to me? Were they just being mean? What were, what were they doing? What were they trying to push me to? It's Okay. Something better, to to better myself, right. And I didn't like it. They were pushing me to pursue something better, to be kind of operating at the level that I'm capable of. And I I learned something like that. You think about this. I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life where someone, it could be a coworker, it could be a peer, it could be a boss, it could be someone in your family, a friend, where somebody called you out on something that you did. Maybe it's a project, maybe it's something else, something you did, and and you knew that you didn't do the best work you could have. Anybody ever had that experience where you've been called out on that? A few of us that can admit that, yeah? Some of you, you just always do your best work, and I applaud you. Thank you, but we're a group therapy session here, so we're just going to help each other out. Where someone called you on something you knew you didn't do your best work on, and I really think that's where coaches and mentors, that's really where, where those, those sorts of folks shine because they help push us beyond what, what, what the easiest thing could be. Now, you think about the term excellence, and that's really kind of what we're talking about today, doing our best, and that's, that's really a core value that we have as a church family. But think about this. We applaud excellence all the time. We have award shows. We're going to have one Sunday night. The American Country Awards, the ACM Awards. We just had like the Oscars and the Grammys. We'll have the ESPN Awards. All of these things we do. What are we doing in those shows? Who are we awarding? What are we awarding in those shows? What is it? Excellence, the top of the top. We, we, we celebrate this all the time. We, we know that excellence matters because we give people awards. We, we get the Nobel Peace Prize. It's got like a million dollars attached to it, doesn't it? That's a little bit of change. I could use that. I'm probably not in the running for that Nobel Prize, but if you nominate me, hey, I'll take that. But think about all the things we, we celebrate. We celebrate people that are at the top of their game, the top of their disciplines. We put them on a pedestal, whether that's good or bad. That's, you could argue that one. But we award excellence because we're attracted to that deep down we want to we want to see those people you know respect what they do because they're at the top of their fields and our church family we've said from the beginning that we really want to be a church family does our best so everything that we put out there the things that we do the programs the things that we try to accomplish in this town we really want to do our very best and we don't do it so that people give us an award although that has happened, but that's not why we did it. We do it, why? Why would we pursue the best? Why would we pursue excellence? Because of the great love God has for us. Because of his great love and mercy and grace, because of how great God is, we wanna in turn just offer up our, the very best we can. And we, not, we won't always get it right, but we wanna offer up the very best we can. Why would we ever shortchange God? Why would we do that? We wouldn't want to do that. So we, as a church family, we, we value excellence as one of our core values. Now, we've been looking at values for several weeks now, and uh, I think David covered one of them last week, did a great job. If you missed that message last week, man, you need to listen to that. He, he really knocked it out of the park. We're really talking about the idea of being externally focused, that we're looking for who maybe isn't part of our church family. There's an empty seat next to me. I should care about that. He did a great job talking about that. We've been in this value series and we've covered many, many values. And if you're new to our church family, that's a great series for you to kind of really engage with because you can really understand where we're coming from. Because values drive what we do companies have them you have them even if your values aren't written down you make decisions based on your values and we do that too as a church family so one of our key values and this is where we're kind of landing the plane on this whole series we're going to end with you know last but not least this idea of doing our best and doing excellent work why because God is worth it so let's take a moment and pray would you pray with me father we come before you and we recognize that uh, you, you want to do powerful things through us. And because of your love, we want to do our very best for you. We want to we do excellence and, and, and for the reason of honoring you for your love and mercy and grace. And so, Lord, help us to reflect your love and truth to our community and to do it with the very best we can. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every one of these values that we've been working through the last several years, or not years, the last several weeks have been about... Based on the life and work of Jesus Christ, and we 're going to talk about that how Jesus himself here in just a few minutes we 're going to talk about how he modeled excellence in several areas of his life. But in the scriptures, we get to see different uh, different versions of excellence, and we start with even creation. If you have a Bible or a device, find Genesis chapter one, and we see a repeated phrase that happens in Genesis chapter one and Again, if you're, if you're maybe new to Scripture, the thing that I found about studying the Bible is that when there's repetition, that usually means it's something for us to kind of catch on to, that when God repeats something, then maybe we ought to listen. And in Genesis chapter 1, go ahead and find that if you have a Bible, uh, there's some scattered around. If you're, you're kind of an, uh, an old school, you like the actual book, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1 here in my version. <clears throat> And, uh, and we see God creating. And this is a beautiful, a beautiful narrative here of God creating everything. And he's creating systems and planets and the universe. The other night, Jackie and I were outside on our deck, and it happened to be a clear night. This was several nights ago. And we just looked up. And do you ever do that where you look up at the stars and you just start to wonder, what is out there? Like, God created stuff that we still can't see. He's creating these things. And so we we get a glimpse of that in Genesis chapter one. But here's what I want to point out. We see this seven times. Seven is kind of an interesting number in the Bible, by the way. But we see seven times there's a phrase. Do you know what it is? And God saw that it was good. Seven times God is creating and God saw, and it was good. You think about all that God created, the beauty and wonder of creation. And I'm, just, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but just we're seeing the blooming of things right now. These small little things, microscopic things that God created into, into, into all of the plant life and animal life. And have you even thought about the complexity of the human eyeball I know it's probably not what you're watching TV and you're like, what about that eyeball? I realize that may not be what we think about, but you see what I mean. The, the eyeball, and I'm not an expert by any means, but the complexity that I've heard that just a human eyeball has, like would require ridiculous amounts of ingenuity and in design that our, our our pupils will dilate at the right time letting the right amount of light in the fact that we can see normal when actually one eye is going this way and one's going this way did you know that we have lenses going this way but they they counteract there's I don't even know all the science behind that the fact that that works is unbelievable god has created this planet and every time spring happens we were just driving somewhere the other day and it was like there's there's you know animals are having babies here and it's like all of those little things point to, they're little glimpses of God's great design. And it was excellent. And the scripture says, and God saw that it was good. God has created this amazing place that we live. So he's, he's, he's obviously involved in, in, in creation and showing us his excellence. And the deal is did you know that we are created in his image? So there's a sense that when we create, we're reflecting the image of our creator. That's crazy, but awesome, that we reflect some of his beauty in creation. And, and we, we, we haven't even talked about the fact that humans have morality, that we would, that we would put ourselves in harm's way for someone else, that we have love that goes beyond just what, what we want. I mean, we haven't even touched on the beauty of the design of morality. Or ethics, or that I would put your needs above mine. This is supernatural creation right here. But God saw that it was good. Mm. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Now we see how God has done some excellent work in creation. And then uh, when we we skip forward in the story of Scripture, and uh, the next place I'm going to be is Exodus, Exodus chapter 31. We fast-forward the story. God is doing this this whole narrative, and if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. A lot of the Bible is about uh, what we call the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, starting from from Abraham, and then it goes to Isaac and Jacob, and we have this this process where God is creating a people for himself. And the whole point is it was going to be a nation that was going to bless the entire world, going to bless everybody on the planet. And this nation had lots of ups and downs, but in the formation of this nation... God said, hey, I want, I, want, I want to be the center of this nation. In fact, even how Israel was laid out when they would march and that sort of thing, the, 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 the place of worship for God was the tabernacle, was kind of this temporary place where God met. It was like the center of where they would move out. And so God was always the center. In fact, he said, I want to be your king. I know other nations have kings, but I want to be your king. I'm your God, you just need me as king. And so God is king and he sets up this nation and he says, okay, now when you approach me, um, you need to do it with reverence. You, you need to do this with, uh, be careful about it, be intentional about it. And so God gives them this design of this tabernacle or this tent where God's presence would come into the people's uh, surrounding. His presence would come near and be in this tabernacle or this tent. And, and God was very specific about making sure that everything that was used and everything that was designed for this special place where God was going to visit visit his people was very meticulous and of the best quality and of the best materials and it needed to shine. Exodus chapter 31. We're fast-forwarding quite a bit here in the story. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the son of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God and ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to design artistic, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving to work in every craft. God, and there's a few other folks in here, God gave these guys, these artisans, these craftsmen, these people that could work wonders with their hands and design and using the best quality because when God visited his people, he wanted his people to understand this this matters, this is important, and we need to do this with reverence and intention. So do your very best work. Now this, we could even fast forward to the next stage of Israel when finally Israel says we're, God, you're a great king and everything, but we want our own king. The nation sort of was having struggles, and they finally had physical kings, and they started with King Saul, and that didn't work out so well. Then we had David, and that was a little better. That's probably the golden age of the nation of Israel. Then we got to his son, Solomon, kind of an unlikely king, actually, from the line of David, truth be told. But God chose Solomon, and what does Solomon do? He's like, we're not doing any permanent, or we, we, we don't want to do this tabernacle thing anymore. We're going to do a permanent place. And so we have the first Solomon temple. And it was built, laid out similar to the tabernacle, but even it was like took it up a whole notch. Now this is a permanent structure and it has like, now we have like excellent wood and stone and carving. And it became this wonderful kind of stage two place where God would come into the midst of his people and meet with them. And so Solomon took it up a whole nother notch. Got the best of the best of the best, the best craftsmen and everything. Why did it matter? Why did the best matter? Because of how great God is. And he wanted his people to understand, when you approach me, it matters. And I bet that temple shone for, for miles around. And God's presence would come into there. And people would see the beauty of the temple and the beauty of everything laid out. And they're like, wow, our God is great. Our God is good. Look at this. And it would draw them to worship. In fact, when they brought things to worship, and back in that time, this is a totally different time from us. This seems like so barbaric. But they would have animal sacrifices. And you know what they couldn't bring with them to worship? Wouldn't that be weird to bring, like, an animal to to the church? With you. That's like, I can't even, like my mind can't get around that. But you know what you couldn't bring? An animal with what? Any kind of blemish. Why? Why did that matter? When you approach God, it matters. And he is powerful and mighty. I heard one guy talk about, you know, when you compare the holiness of God to the sun, the sun brings beauty. It's, it's wonderful in our sky. It brings life. To everything on the planet, but if you get too close, holiness will just consume you. God wanted to be approached, but carefully, with intention, with great artistry, and that you bring your very best, right? Does that make sense? Bring your very best. Why does it matter? Because of how great God is. Now let's roll into Jesus. Now we've ro- now if you know the story of the Bible, we just fast-forwarded a whole much more time. So we were just at Israel, and we were talking about the tabernacle and Moses, and then we were talking about Solomon and the temple. These are all things. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay. There's a lot of backstory. I realize, but then we get to to Jesus, and I think in the life of Jesus, he's kind of the fulfillment of everything all the prophecies of the Older Testament part of the Bible. He's the fulfillment of it all. When we want to know really what God is all about, we look to Jesus. And so in in the life of Jesus, we see excellence, I think in in probably lots more areas than this, but at least five areas that I see excellence in the life of Jesus. And here's the first one, if you're taking notes. Jesus was excellent in his work. Now I realize if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're like, hmm, how can you draw that conclusion? Now, if you've been around church enough, you know that, especially if you know the Christmas story, we look at, you know, Joseph, Jesus' dad, kind of adopted him anyway. Anyway, but Joseph was, what was his job? Carpenter, we call him carpenter, craftsman, craftsman, probably worked in both wood and stone. So I'm guessing he wasn't, he was a pretty, you know, manly man. I mean, he worked with heavy stuff. He lifted heavy things a lot, worked with his dad. Jesus was in his 30s, we think, probably when he went to the cross. He had a three-year ministry, but most of his life was spent in the wood shop, in the in the, in the craftsman shop, working as a blue-collar worker with with Joseph. At some point, Joseph passed away. And so Jesus, who's the, the oldest in the family, the oldest boy, there were several siblings and his mom, Mary, and who had to be the sole breadwinner. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus had to pay the bills. Some of you are like, I wish I never had to pay bills. I agree with you. But Jesus knew what it was like to pay bills. So for a good portion of his life, he was clocking it in, making great things. And the thing is, here's, and this is an argument from silence. I realize that some of you who are very adept at Logical arguments. It's an argument from silence, but do you notice that there's no place where Jesus' craftsmanship is ever questioned? No, nope, you know, because people knew him. They, they recognized him, especially around, you know, Galilee, around Nazareth. People knew who he was. In fact, they knew his, his dad real well. His dad, the craftsman. You see, I think he learned how to do excellent work, and he probably built a lot of stuff that people had in their houses. I don't know. Can you imagine that? Wait, you know, just think about that for a second. You have a dinner party. People are coming over. They're, they're around the table. Everybody's telling stories, right? Yeah, my, my son, you know, he's on the honor, whatever, school. And you're like, about halfway through dinner, you kind of blow this bomb on him. Well, this table, Jesus made. How do, you, how do you ever win an argument ever again? I have furniture made by Jesus. I mean, that's like the ultimate I mean, did he carve on the, anyway, so, sorry. But he did great work, and listen to this. Listen to this. Isn't this, and this is one time where Jesus was speaking, and kind of afterward, people were kind of talking and debriefing about what he was talking about, and, and someone in the crowd's like, hey, uh, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that, isn't that Joseph's son right there? Like, they recognized him who had been a craftsman for years in their community. Jesus excelled. In his work, he also excelled in relationships. I am amazed at how much you see in the New Testament Jesus is willing to be interrupted. He is willing to, to allow children come, you, you know, loud, messy children come hang out. He, he's willing to put up with, you know, his smelly. Football team, the the 12 all the time, and they're always asking and bickering and all kinds of stuff. They walk everywhere. It's hot. Have you ever been to the Middle East? It's hot. And they're walking everywhere. Jesus, in his relationships, didn't seem to be bothered by any, even people who you know he disagreed with. He would be willing to enter into conversation and ask questions and actually invest in people. He didn't seem to have a problem with that. He was always calling people to come follow me, come spend time with me. His 12, you know, obviously had a great couple of year run with him and they got to hang out with him and eat food with him and watch him create food, which would have been pretty pretty amazing. And he he didn't have a problem with people being in proximity. Proverbs 18:24. You you know this probably if you've been around uh, church at all. It, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? That's the end part of 1824, but to me, that's Jesus. He sticks closer than a brother. I have some brothers. Jesus sticks closer than a brother. He was a true friend, and people were drawn to that. It's amazing to me when you see Jesus throughout the New Testament, people, even people like they know they're not worthy or whatever, soldiers, people that are tax collectors, people that are prostitutes, we don't even know if they left their prostitution for a while, but they, they were drawn to Jesus. He was like a friendship magnet. And I, I, am, I just am so admiring of his ability to excel in relationships. He was also good at communication. Certainly, you could see that. He was very good at communicating. He, he tended to really focus on using stories and narratives. So you'll see that in the New Testament where Jesus tended to use what was in front of him. You know, if they were in a field, he'd talk about wheat. You know, if these in the temple, he'd talk about this thing or that. He would use what was in front of him, a very narrative sort of teacher. And he definitely knew the scriptures well, but he tended to be less academic in how he communicated. It was much more to where people are at. He, he communicated in, in langu- language and narrative. And, uh, and it, it's amazing to me how many times you see in the New Testament, like in Luke chapter four, when people heard Jesus communicate, they marveled at his words. They, they marveled at his words, the things that he would say, they marveled at his gracious words coming from his lips. That's a great communicator. The next thing here, I think he was excellent in teaching. And if you, if you read much of, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I, I keep harping on that. It's really good for you to read that and see his interactions. The number one way that Jesus taught, does anybody know? I've said it before probably here. The number one way he taught What did he use? Questions. Questions. It's crazy how many questions he asked people. Who do you say they am? Uh, he, He would be cornered by people who were religious. And you know, he had the audacity to tell even religious leaders in the temple, how do you read that? Or have you never read? Which is kind of a, anyway. Have you never read? As if these guys that spend their whole life with reading the scripture, Jesus has the audacity to say, have you never read this passage right here? He had the audacity to say that. I wish I could see his face when he was doing that. You know, I don't think he was spiteful, but you know, I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall on some of these conversations. Right? Would you agree? And we know John tells us if we would have wrote down everything that happened, we couldn't have. We didn't have enough books. Think of the things that we don't know. Those little conversations. But we got enough. I, I get that. We got enough. But he was excellent in his teaching. And here's why I think questions were so important. Because if people ask you questions, you have to own it. Like you can't just, you know, sit there and scribble, oh, that's a good idea. Love your neighbor. It seems like a good idea. My, my neighbor should read that. Uh, he, you know, this is what we do. We'll sit there, oh, that's a great idea. It's, you know, lecture, we'll keep doing this. You know, ben keeps talking, we'll just. But if you ask a question, now you have to, like, stop for a second, put down the pencil and go, uh... You know, I think that whole loving your neighbor thing, remember, Jesus tells that whole story. This is, if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. Jesus told a story once really about helping people understand that anybody in need is your neighbor. That was kind of the point of the story. But again, that was another one of those situations where Jesus kind of answered a question with a question. Who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Asking questions because it made people own. Jesus would ask, do you want me to heal you? That seems like a crazy thing. Yes, of course. What can I do for you? Jesus would ask these questions. We would think maybe it would be obvious in the situation, but again, we've talked about this before. If you were blind, or maybe you had an an ailment where you were begging for your entire life, and all of a sudden you got healed, what does that mean for you? You got to show up for work tomorrow. So he would ask people, Do you want to be healed? Because if you are, That's gonna mean other stuff. You're like, you're gonna have to go back to like the family. You're gonna have to like, you know, earn a living and you know, play that out. Is that do you want to be healed? And I think probably some people say, not for me. I don't know. Jesus asked questions. He was an excellent teacher. In fact, the scriptures tell us in Matthew 7, when he spoke, people like they listened because he spoke with authority. He spoke with authority. As if he knew what he was talking about. And I think we know that's important when you're teaching or mentoring or coaching. It's important for you to kind of know what you're talking about. Jesus knew what he was talking about. And finally, he was excellent in, in how how he modeled a life of faith. He modeled a life of a true human, really, as N.T. Wright would say. He modeled this life of always being present. I so am amazed by him where he would always seem to be present no matter where he was. He could be in a religious place. He could be in the marketplace. He could be in a home. He could be out in the wilderness. He was always present. He modeled for us what it means to be a true human. He lived out what he spoke. And every day when he's with his disciples, they would hang out with him. And and what was interesting is it rubbed off on him. Spending that much time, and this is one of those subtle things in Scripture, but he clearly rubbed off on, on, on his disciples. You know how I know that? Acts chapter 4. You now the early church is starting to get going. Jesus gave the orders and said, I'll see you. I'm with you always until the end of the age. Holy Spirit. Bam, the church starts. These disciples begin ministry and they start getting arrested. And one time a couple of them got arrested. This is in Acts chapter Acts chapter 4. And they these disciples were identified as being connected to Jesus. And here's what the phrase that is said of them is stated in scripture Matthew or I'm sorry Acts 4:13. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized in these disciples that they had been with Jesus. Could people say that about us? Could people say that about us? They recognized that we had been with Jesus. Could they say that? I mean, every time I read that, I just get even more convicted and challenged. Could that be said of your life? Could that be said of my life? If you're a follower of Christ in here, the way you handle things at work, the way you handle stress, the way you handle relationships, all these things we just talked about, these areas, the way you handle relationships and communicating and teaching people and modeling, would people say about you, it's clear, you, you know Jesus. Now, I realize in our culture anymore, maybe it's not okay to, you know, have those conversations, but it is a good question for us. Can people see the kind of life, the kind of true human that Jesus modeled in your life and in my life? That's where it really starts to come right back, right? We looked at Jesus and how he worked out excellence in these areas. How would you rank, right? Jesus was excellent in his work. Would people say that about your work? I realize some of you are retired and that's okay, but could that have been said about you? That when you left the room, people were like, wow, he does a really great job. This guy goes over and above the call of duty. How is your work? Is it excellent? And are you doing your work as if Jesus was your boss and you were handing him the time card at the end of the day? Doesn't that change the feeling a little bit? Doesn't that change the temperature when we're thinking about the work that we do? Are we doing our very best? How about this? Is there room in your life to invest in people and invest in relationships? Spend more time with people that maybe you haven't? It takes intentionality. I think that's a big part of even our gatherings here on Sundays. Make some coffee appointments. Make some lunch times. Get some dinners figured out. Get Connect. Because we help each other. We encourage one another. We get ideas from each other. It's pretty huge. Is there room in your life, like Jesus excelled in relationships, could you maybe turn up the temperature on some of your relational time? You know? I don't know that we need to binge another Netflix show. Might be good for us to spend an hour or two with another couple. I don't know. Did I just step on toes by saying binge? Binge? Whatever. Anyway. When I was a kid, we didn't have that phrase. I don't even know what Binge was a bad thing. I don't know. Now we do it with the streaming media. How about, how about this? Do people know that you love them? So when I look at Jesus, he tended to be able to communicate his great love and mercy. In fact, he showed in his life and how he re- responded with people, he showed the great love of God. Do people know you even love them? If you're a parent out there, do your kids know that? Communi- that's, that's, that's being a little bit of Jesus there. Showing your kids you love them. Even if they're going through a rough time. Sometimes kids go through rough stuff. How about your, your grandkids? Do they know that you love them? People in your life, do they know? Because Jesus communicated his love with people. How about this? Are there things that you know that you could be teaching somebody right now? And just for whatever reason, time, capacity, intention, you just haven't. You've got skills in your life that you haven't used to help somebody else. I don't know, it could, it could be a lot of things. It could be something technical. It could be something, you know, mechanical. It could be something artistic. It could be something, you know, maybe you're, you're a great cook, uh, and you could teach someone how to make great bread. Well, what a great legacy to have, to teach someone how to make bread. I don't know. I'm just, are there things that you know that you could tr- teach other people? Because Jesus tended to think, hey, I can teach others. I can use what I know and to, and to teach. And obviously, we're not, we're not Jesus, but we can learn from his example of being a teacher to people, especially those who are younger. And finally, are you modeling a healthy Christ follower to the people in your life? Are you modeling that for them? For people in your life, your kids, your grandkids, coworkers, people in your neighborhood, when again, they look at us, are they saying, man, they, they seem like they've been with Jesus. They seem a little different. Maybe they don't know it's Jesus right away, but they just know you seem to be kind. You seem to care in, in a culture that's largely so isolated. You know, we don't know what anything's, anybody's doing. Could you, could, could you warm the temperature on modeling that for the people in your life. Imagine if we, if we could do this. Imagine if we as a church family, we really pursued excellence. And what that's gonna mean is that we do fewer things, but we do them really well. Doing fewer things well. I, I've known a lot of church situations where, and I've been to a lot of churches where, it seems like the whole goal of the calendar at church is to fill it up, fill it every night with some program, something. And there's nothing wrong with the programs. I get that, they serve a need. But we're not called to be busy. We're called to follow Jesus and help other people do that. And so we don't want to just be busy and throw stuff on the calendar to make us feel good. We want to do what's best, most most helpful for people to be discipled, to be drawn to Jesus, to show that to the world. We want to do the best we can, but probably with fewer things. That's what it it really is like. You know, in in the Old Testament, we talked about that just briefly today, that uh, the people brought their best, right? They, 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 when they brought something, they were going to offer it to God. It, it, you couldn't have a blemish. It couldn't be like a, you know, a three-legged sheep or whatever. That was not cool. It was supposed to be, you know, like a healthy, you know, without blemish. People gave their best. And so what if we could do that as a church family, that we looked at God being so powerful and mighty and so worthy of our, our attention, so worthy of our best that we would bring our best. My only takeaway today, one thing. Jesus gave all. So give him your best. I know we're not always gonna get it right, but don't give him the seconds. And this could play out in a number of ways. You know, many of us, if we don't spend time with the Lord in the morning, the rest of the day, we're not gonna, we're not gonna really get it. You know what I mean? I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, if I miss it in the morning, it's tough. We give him the first. Maybe, that, maybe that's something small for you. This, this week, you give him the first part of your day. Maybe before you even get out of bed, God, I'm thankful that I'm still breathing. Uh, God, I surrender to you, and I give myself to you. Someone this week told me that surrendering to Jesus and surrendering to the Holy Spirit so that, you know, your life would, would reflect Christ, it's almost like, it's like when you float. When you float, you have to just kind of completely, you can't be kind of forcing it. you got you to gotta float. You've got to let God do his work through you. That's surrender. Maybe that's the first thing you do in the morning. So give God your best first thing in the morning. Why would we ever shortchange God? I hope not. That we want to bring him our best because he is so powerful and mighty and he's done so much for us. Why would we ever shortchange him? Let's honor the Lord and King and give him our best. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we, we recognize that you've done your best. You created us in your, in your image. Father, you're more powerful and mighty than we can even understand, that we can even grasp. You are excellent and worthy of our praise. And so, Lord, empower each of us to give you our very best, to not shortchange you or take shortcuts. That, Father, we would honor you with our best. We wouldn't go through life half-hearted or mediocre, that we would really want to serve you and do our very best. Up until the day you you bring us home with you, Lord, help us to live kingdom life now and and be prepared for what's ahead. So, Lord, help us pursue excellence and, and to give our best to you. In Jesus' name, amen.